looking at 1 through 17. It's found in your pew Bible at 1053, page 1053. I'll ask you to keep your finger on that text because I want you to be able through the sermon to look down at references I make. I read them, but uh, I think it's helpful if you not only hear them, but you look in the text and look back up to verse 1 or down to verse 14 and see what, you, what is actually written there. So here we have John 1, 1 through 17. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. Now, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. These children who were not born, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of the will of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the reading of our text for this morning. As the eyewitness to the life and the teachings of Jesus began to die out, the eyewitnesses, those who had seen and heard, who, I mean, there were multitudes who were in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion. There were those who had been to churches and they shared what they had seen and what they experienced. Perhaps there were some who had been fed. Uh, some of the 5,000 who were there, uh, we don't know. But as time goes on and the witnesses begin to die out and the apostles are aging, it became critical for those who were still remaining to write down for future generations the life and the teachings of Jesus. And we're thankful this morning that it has been preserved for us. John was called by God and anointed by the Holy Spirit to give us a divinely inspired record. We should read and proclaim not just a set of facts, <clears throat> but what such facts and why such facts have been uh, written and preserved for us. 
as the Word of God. Why, why do we have this? Why is it so important? Why is it so critical to us? And it, the answer is because it is an accurate and inspired record of the words in the life of Christ. It is the Word of God. It is God speaking to us even this morning. John himself tells us that this gospel doesn't contain every sign that Jesus performed. And it doesn't, as we know, contain every word that Jesus spoke. We don't have every good morning and good night and all of the things that were said uh, during the day. But what we have, John tells us, the things that are recorded here are written for a specific purpose. In chapter 20, John writes, these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let me read it again with emphasis on particular words. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I have a question for you this morning. It's not unlike the last time we gathered together. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name? Ponder that. I hope every person here this morning right now can respond in the affirmative. Yes, I believe. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are my Lord and Savior. Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, moves from a general assertion to an individual application when he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is general. He came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. This is personal. He's applying this to himself. Individual application. It's one thing this morning to believe that Jesus came to save sinners in general. Yes, everybody, yeah, Jesus came to save sinners. I've heard the testimony of a man who was in the hospital and someone came to witness to him and they were asking him all the things that you believe and they said, do you believe that Jesus came to save sinners? He said, yes, I believe that. He said, do you believe that he came to save you? And his answer was, I never thought of it. It never occurred to me to make that personal application. He came to save sinners, but he came to save sinners such as you and I. Do you understand what I've said? Do you, under, do you know what Paul meant and what I mean when we assert that Christ Jesus came to save sinners? If there's any uncertainty, and I look out and I see familiar faces, and I believe, I have no reason to not to believe that we're not all believers this morning. Perhaps someone is listening uh, uh, online, and the question remains, do, do you know that you, are, that you have been born again? But if there's any uncertainty, any doubt about what we've just talked about, or anything that we say this morning, I invite you to seek, speak to me after the service. Let's pray again. Father, as we proceed this morning, please grant us eyes to see. Grant us ears to hear and hearts to believe all that you have to say to us this morning from your word. And finally, Lord, even as you have called us to worship, we 
might echo the words of Augustine. You have called us to worship. Command what you will, and Lord, in your grace, grant what you command. Amen. As we continue this morning with verses 14 through 17, the proclamations of the first 13 verses should be echoing in our ears. Now, I know I'm, I preach once a month, and so it's been four weeks since we were, we were in this pulpit. But it, after four or five weeks, it should be, if it wasn't familiar before, it should, there's certain things that should just echo in your ears as we proceed this morning, because though we have spent four, maybe this is the fifth Sunday, verse by verse, it's a collective whole. It all fits together, and it's important to see that. In verse 1, we see the name, the Word. And if you're looking in your Bibles, if you look at verse 14, that name is picked up again. And the Word became flesh. In verse 1, he was with the Father. Where is he now? What is John saying? He's with man. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. In verse 1, we see his divinity. He was God. In verse 14, we see his humanity. He took on flesh. He became flesh. In verse 4, we see he is the light and life. In verse 14, it says we see or we have beheld his glory. In verse 12, there are those who received him and therefore received sonship. In verse 16, he says, For from his fullness we have received grace and truth. Both sections... Verses 1 through 13 and verses 14 through 8, 17 this morning, contain a parenthesis. It's the interjection of John the Baptist. And we're not going to go back, back there again. But it's put in there, I think, uh, as a contrast. And that's important to our thesis this morning. John, it says in verse 8, was not the light, but was a witness to the light. You see the contrast. He, he's pointing and directing to someone else and not to himself. And then he goes on to say that Jesus was the true light. The idea is that the light is greater than the witness to the light. This, verse 15, it says, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because <clears throat> he was before me. The contrast here is both chronological and ontological. There was in the Old Testament and the New Testament economy rank uh, uh, by chronology. The firstborn received the highest rank within the family. Honor was given to the earlier rabbis unless, as the other rabbis discussed, what the first rabbis said. So there's a, in the uh, Middle Eastern thought, there's this idea of one before the other in a certain rank. But John is making it clear. <clears throat> John the Baptist was born before Jesus, and he began his ministry before Jesus. But John certainly recognizes Jesus' preexistence in his superior ministry. He came to bear witness to the light, but Jesus is the light itself. Verse 14 through 17 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is the one of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, 
because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Last month we looked at the first part of 15, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father. That sermon last month focused on the wonder of the God-man and God incarnate pitching or dwelling, pitching his tent in the midst of his people, a, a uh, not-so-subtle hint back to the tabernacle where God dwelt with his people. Today, I would like for us to focus on the last part of verse 14 and then verses 16 and 17. In these verses, we will be looking at the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So please turn in your Bibles. This is a kind of a detour here. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53, uh, page 729. Here, here the prophet Isaiah uh, asks a question a couple of questions, and then he gives the reason. And here are the two questions. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, we're not going to exegete this passage, but there's a purpose in it. And here's the reason he asks this. He says, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had, mark this, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from whom men hid their faces, he was, a, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now if we look back at John, and you hear the testimony of John, it seems to be a proclamation, this, this is a proclamation to an audience who would have been familiar with this passage. These are a group of people who were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And of course, those where he's preaching to the choir, they have already accepted Christ as the Messiah. But he says, we have seen his glory, a glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, and grace came through Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, we have Isaiah's picture of Jesus, and then we have this proclamation that uh, John is making in, in, his, in this text here. So the question to you is, how do we reconcile these two different, seemingly different observations? And of course, all of you astute scholars and saying, well, you haven't read the rest of Isaiah 53. But to, con to reconcile this morning, I, I think it's because we must think eschatologically. In other words, we must think in terms of life and death and our eternal destiny. We must understand the glory of the resurrection, 
the glory of the ascension, the glory of the second coming as inseparable and connected to the glory of the cross. The cross as a basis of our restoration to pure worship in the very presence of God. The cross to the Jew was a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles it was foolishness. Or as Isaiah said, it was despised, and it was, not, it was esteemed not. Paul says, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And thus, it is the glory of God. So we don't, don't we equate the glory and the majesty with power? When we think of glory and majesty and prowess and all of it, we think of it as power. But we so often forget or we minimize or we don't see the power of the work that was done in the cross. Sin was dealt with. The power of sin was broken for those who have put their faith in Christ. Question, so what does John equate glory with as seen in Jesus? The answer does it say power here? No, it says grace and truth. Remember, John is looking back with post-resurrection and Pentecostal faith. And he sees the glory of the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises in the words and the work and the person of Christ. Just a point of clarification. When I say Pentecostal power, John looks back with a faith that has been anointed with the power at Pentecost. He had the indwelling, Jesus had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit from birth, and yet at his baptism, the Spirit descended upon him as he began his work. At Pentecost, Peter and the other apostles received the endowment of the power of the, of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I mean. He looks back with resurrection faith, and he looks back with uh, spiritual faith endowed by the Holy Spirit. In this text, I suggest that both grace and truth are mentioned together here, and yet the accent or the emphasis is on grace. Why do I make that inference? Because John could have said, and from his fullness we have all received truth upon truth. But he didn't say that. He says in this place, grace upon grace. After this verse, now I'm not minimizing truth, but emphasizing and putting the accent on grace. After this verse, the word grace does not appear anywhere again in the Gospel of John. When I read that, I was shocked. <laughs> I just, just I assumed it was. But by contrast, the word truth or truly will occur 55 times. Let me add that it is through truth that grace works. You remember, and, and Jesus certainly emphasized truth over and over again. He, you remember Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In another place in his prayer, he says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. But it's by grace, as we will see, that this truth is applied to us. And it's through the truth that we've come to understand grace. I believe John and John's accent is on beholding the glory of God in and through his grace. So we are dealing with two words this morning, glory and grace. Now we could spend the whole time trying to define them, but as you will see, John uses a shorthand, maybe not so short, that his readers would have understood. 
He does so by drawing a comparison between Moses and Jesus. We've seen already that he has drawn a comparison between John, who was a witness of the light, and Jesus, who was the light. Now he's going to pick up an Old Testament story. He just mentions it. Moses, through Moses came the law, and through Jesus come truth and grace. But I hope this morning this will all fit together. If I, <clears throat> I digress here for a moment. Looking at the text again, we read, We have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is indeed, and we talked about a glory that Jesus had with the Father before he entered the world and became clothed or enclosed in human flesh. But note that he did not say a glory as of the only Son of the Father, which is certainly true, but he says from the Father. And I didn't want to skip over that word because that word is a significant word. From, it re, it, it's speaking of the glory that we see since the Father sent his Son for the very purpose of manifesting his glory in, in his works and in his deeds. If I counted correctly, 16 times in John, Jesus claims to be sent by the Father. I ask you, does that seem insignificant? I don't think so, especially in the context in which these statements are made. Five times in his high priestly prayer, he claims in chapter 17 <coughs> to be having been sent by the Father. Notice the words that we're talking about, glory and name, not grace here, but being sent by the Father. In John 17, 1 through 5, Jesus has been teaching. And so John picks up here after the discourse. Uh, he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Note the verse, I have manifested your name to the people to you, whom you have given me out of the world. This is what Jesus came to do, right? He didn't come, and, and we go, if we have time in the future, the Lord permits, and we go through John, we'll see this again and again, that Jesus understood his mission was to present the Father, uh, to be that mediator, to bring man and God together. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we read, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's that word darkness. And the same darkness that was upon the deep, and God spoke out of heaven and said, Let there be light. That same power, that same majesty, he is working through his person of, the, of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now John doesn't define glory or grace, but he says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
Someone has said what John is saying is that the way people meet God today, see God today, and to get to know God today is by looking at the glory of Jesus, namely at the fullness of his grace. They continued by saying, if you want to really alert, if you want to be really alert to seeing Jesus, his divine beauty, his glory, the spiritual brightness that sets him apart as self-evidently real and true, then make sure you tune your senses to see his grace. And that's what he's full of, grace and truth. John Ritterbos has written in his commentary on John, by means of incarnation, by means of the incarnation of God, God has visibly appeared among humankind. And we may immediately add that the entire gospel of John is proof of it, proof of that abundant glory, a glory manifested before the eyes of all. This is just a summary, a prologue. I don't know if John wrote the gospel and then went back and wrote a summary or if the prologue was his outline. If you know, let me know. But it is a summary of all that he's going to point to in the gospel. There are two obstacles that prevent us from seeing this glory. And we're talking about tuning our hearts and minds to seeing the grace of God. But there are two obstacles that prevent this. One is the darkness of this world. And the other is the darkness in our own hearts. The incarnation was the entrance of light into the world. Regeneration or new birth is a process whereby the light, by the light, Jesus, we receive life. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Just before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, what did he say to Martha? He said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? It is by grace that we are saved and through faith or by believing. It takes grace to see grace or see the grace of Christ. If we move straight from verse 14 to 16, we might add one, as one translator did, because instead of for. Could be possibly mean the same thing. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth, because from the fullness we have received grace upon grace. It seems that John makes a proclamation here without an explanation. He simply adds to this, for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When we read this last verse, the, uh, the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came the Lord Jesus Christ. I, this is a generalization. Perhaps your mind doesn't go here. But too often what we do is we think of Paul's writing and his treatment of law and grace. We think of law versus grace. <clears throat> I don't think that that's what he's doing here. The law pointed certainly to the need for grace, but the law was given as a gracious act to God's people. We shouldn't think negatively of the law. Not one word, not one jot, not one tittle has passed away. We simply have a Savior who has fulfilled for us the demands of the law. So what is John speaking about? 
He talked about the glory of God. He's speaking about seeing the glory of God in the fullness of his grace. And he uses Moses' interaction with God to show it. Keep in mind that the audience, if they were primarily Jewish, would have known these stories backward and forth. They would have been taught these stories from their youth. Most of you, if not all of you, know the story of the Exodus. You know the story of the Passover. You, you, and yet, sometimes we, we don't go there perhaps often enough to see the, the foundation and the promises that John is preaching. But John goes back. Jewish readers would have known how God asked Moses to lead the people from the Sinai <clears throat> to, the, to the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had, would have known of the special relationship that Moses had with God. God spoke to him, the scriptures tell us, face to face as one speaks to a friend. God knew his name. He says, I know you, your name and you have found him, you have found chesed, you have found grace in the sight of the Lord. It is in this context that Moses asks three questions of God. In Exodus 33, verses 12, Moses asks a question. He asks of God. He says, God asked him to go up, and he says, who's going to go with me? That's his first question. The second question is, show me your ways. To which God answers, my presence will go with you. When Moses was sent before Pharaoh, who went with him? Aaron, his brother. Remember? <laughs> Moses is a little reluctant, even though he's a friend of God, and they speak face to face. He said, you're going to send me up, and, 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 and the people are murmuring about going into this land. He says, who's going to go with me? And God says, I will send my presence with you, and I will give you rest. But finally, he goes, I'm reminiscent of Abraham and his dickering with God. You remember before the angels came and he was going to destroy Sodom, and he said for 10 or 50, 10, and he works it down. Will you say, there's this, I don't know if there's a lesson for us in this or not in our relationship and speaking to God, but I know that we ask too little and we don't expect enough from the God of the universe. He says, show me your glory. That's the next thing that he asked for. To which God says, and if you want to turn, I'll give you a moment to turn. We'll take the time. It's uh, Exodus 33, and I'll begin reading in verse 19. Verse 19. Okay, verse 18. Moses says, please show me your glory. And God responds this way. He didn't say yes. <laughs> he didn't say no. But notice what he says. He says, I will, lost my place. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Show me your glory. And God says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name. Show me your glory. And he says, I'm going to proclaim to you my name. The Lord, and of course you know 
when he, Moses asked the first time, what's your name that I might tell the people? I am that I am. <clears throat> the Lord, and I will be, excuse me, he says, and I will proclaim my name before you, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy unto whom I will show mercy. Hidden, not hidden in there, uh, but in that language, he's saying, I will do what I will do. And of course, we're thankful that he's going to show mercy and he's going to show grace. But what he's saying is, I have the power. There's no power that can force me to be gracious. I am gracious. And I will show grace and mercy to whom I will show grace. This is free, sovereign grace. This is the power of God. That There's nothing outside of God that can compel him. There, how puny our efforts to try to earn grace or earn merit. And God says, I'll show grace to whom I will show grace, and I'll show mercy to whom I will show grace. But then he continues. But he said, you cannot see my face. Did Moses ask to see the face of God? What did he ask to see? He asked to see the glory of God. What did we read earlier from Corinthians? He says, we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And this is not just physical characteristics because God doesn't have a face. He's a spirit. But in the Arianic blessing, we said we asked for his countenance, that he would turn and the, the glories and the majesty and the wonder uh, and his grace and all that he is, his loving kindness would shine forth upon us and that we would be blessed. So you know the rest of the story. He hides, he hides him in the cleft of the rock, and he covers it with his hand, and he can only see the hinder part of God because no man can see God and live. Oh, I wish we had time to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where it picks up with Moses and the veil that he wore in chapter 34 here. It, it talks about it also. <laughs> I have one verse from chapter 3. But our time is fleeting, so let's look at chapter 34, uh, verses 5 and 8. So God said, this is what I'll do, and he does it. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of mercy and of gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will, be, who, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? Are you still looking? Still looking at the text? What does Moses do? When God passes before him and he declares his name and his glory, what does he do? He falls on his face and he worships God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about a veil that has blinded the children of Israel and he's drawn a contrast between them and some who have come to believe and believers today. And he, he ends up, uh, chapter 3, talking in this way. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord there is freedom. And we... And we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image 
from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. We'll close with several verses here in conclusion. See, behold, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is they did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he is pure. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as if we have been fully known. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. My gracious God and Father, even as we sit here this morning, we pray that uh, the promise is that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So I pray as the word goes out, Lord, that you would impress upon us and that you would do your work in us and that we would be conformed to your image. And Father, now as we continue in song uh, and, and benediction, Lord, we pray that our hearts might be drawn to you in wonder and in worship. We might proclaim in our minds and our hearts that you are alone worthy to receive praise and glory and honor. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.